everybody I know has donated something to somebody at some point. I don't care if it was, you know, some old clothing or if it was some money or if it's your kid's school or if it was, you know, millions of dollars. But the most important piece of advice I can give and really where it all begins is treating the other person the way you would want to be treated. I think that it will transform the way that people are doing fundraising and really start to get down the path we need to go on. From the Jewish Funders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I'm Andres Pokoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and the Jewish community. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, we are speaking with Lisa Greer, a Jeff and member and author of the 2020 book, Philanthropy Revolution, How to Inspire Donors, Build Relationships and Make a Difference. The first such book written from the perspective of a philanthropist. Lisa is a commissioner of the California State Commission on the Status of Women and Girls, and she also sits on the executive committee of the Cedar sinai Board of Governors. She has served as commissioner and chair of the Beverly Hills Cultural Heritage Commission and trustee of the Jewish Community Foundation of Los Angeles. She was also a board of many organizations, including the LA District Attorney Crimes Prevention Foundation, Make-A-Wish of Greater Los Angeles, Girl Scouts of Greater Los Angeles. Earlier in her career, Lisa was a studio executive at NBC and Universal Studios, and she founded and led several companies, including a management consulting and strategic advisory firm specializing in digital media and entertainment businesses. In this episode, we talk about her philanthropic strategy, some common mistakes that fundraisers and philanthropists make, and ways to strengthen relationships between grant makers and grant seekers. Take a listen. So thank you, Lisa, for being here. Really great to chat. You know, we're talking mostly about your recent book, The Philanthropy Revolution. But let me start asking you this. Did you ever think that you would one day write a book about philanthropy? Uh, I thought about it not until I decided to do it. I, I really only decided to do it, as you probably read in the book, because I was um, I was basically angry every morning about things that were happening to me as a philanthropist and about basically pitches I was getting, things that were you know, emails in five different colors, or or you could see where they filled in pieces of it from a, a form letter, or my name was misspelled, or it was sent to my husband, or, you know, whatever. And every day there was something. And so I spent about probably somewhere between three and six months every morning getting ready to go into a breakfast meeting or, or work, whatever, take the kids to school, calling one of about three or four friends and just complaining and saying, you won't believe what I got this morning. And I decided to then record my rants and my frustration into my phone. And after a few days of that and listening back at it, I thought, you know what? This is ridiculous to have a sit in a phone or sit in the car. I, I really want to use this for good. So I, the only way I could think of, I was thinking, well, I could do presentations or I could do whatever. And the way I thought was the best way to get to as many people as possible was to write a book. Before that, I had never considered it. So it's uh, it was like I had it all in my head and I had to get it out. 
and I wanted it to be used for good. So that's why we wrote but, the book. But you haven't considered being a philanthropist either. It's something that you kind of grew into, right? That's true. That's true. The idea of me being a philanthropist 15 years ago, I would have just laughed. It would have just not even been part of my, really my so, vocabulary. That was something that, that other people did. So tell us briefly about that journey. Sure. Uh, so uh, I grew up in a very middle-class Jewish home, but there wasn't a lot of, I would say there wasn't a, a culture of giving per se. We weren't a, a federation family. We were- All of this in Los Angeles, right? In Los Angeles, yeah. My father was a member of, you know, B'nai B'rith. I did uh, BBG and we belonged to a synagogue. My mother would be the head of the PTA or uh, we would be involved in something, you know, kind of neighborhood local oriented. And that was about it. I, I have an uncle in Chicago who was very involved in going on missions to Israel, but our family just, we just didn't. And I think it's just, it, it's more of an economic kind of thing. And the people around us also were of, I think, around the same economic level. And so if you said major gift, I wouldn't know what that meant. And then I went on to college, grad school, et cetera, started hearing a little bit about people giving in various different ways became part of an organization called the Hollywood Women's Political. It was basically a PAC. And we raised money for Clinton and various other people. And I sort of learned a little bit about giving them. I started to learn about 501c3s and PACs and those things like that. And so, so I kind of learned a little bit, but we still didn't have a lot of money. I was still, I was putting my husband through law school. I was dealing with five children, et cetera. My husband and I were both involved in digital media from the early days. We certainly knew about companies going public. Uh, I had run a company for a while called Soundbreak that was one of the first uh, online radio stations, basically, where I actually put together the fundraising and had to actually write the PPM for a uh, eventual public offering. And I was involved in also that at NBC when we sold off our internet assets to become part of a, a company called Zoom, which is really funny these days because that was X-O-O-M. I don't think it still exists. So I, I was involved a little bit that way. And I knew that there was a lot of money at the end of that, but it was only for a few people. So it didn't occur to me that I was going to be one of those people. Of course, everybody wanted to, but after many, many years of being with my husband and uh, him working without uh, any kind of salary and putting all of his money into his third or fourth company, which was called Real D. And uh, I had a company that was dealing with helping people create families. It was a, a, an egg donor agency called Beverly Hills Egg Donation. We found ourselves in a position where we were weeks away from becoming incredibly wealthy. And we didn't know if that was really going to happen. I started Pinching myself is, is, is too minimal of a statement because we just couldn't believe it. But because we own such a big piece of the company at the IPO, we owned about 15%, we had to learn all these regulations and we had to have a securities attorney and we had to have all of these people explaining trusts and all of that stuff to me. So I, I didn't even really understand how a trust worked. I just knew that there were these wealthy people who like Paris Hilton had a trust and went and bought Ferraris. That's kind of all I knew. So we sat down together and it wasn't, should we give away the money? It was, we were, we were almost a little bit embarrassed by it, I think at the beginning. And my kids still are a little bit. Uh, and we said, let's send a chunk of money to somewhere and make a big, not a big splash, but make a big uh, impact somewhere. So I said to my husband, let's sit down. We were in the living room and I just said, let's each choose something. Instead of we choose something together, let's each choose something major we want to give to. Where would we like that to be? You know, what area? And he said, I would like to do something to help because he's had Crohn's disease since he's been about 11 or 12 years old, had lots and lots of surgeries. 
Uh, and as you probably know, in, in the Jewish community, it's about four times as prevalent in the Jewish community, Ashkenazi Jews, than elsewhere. And they were just starting to determine that it had a genetic component. So he said, look, I want to make sure that our kids their kids, kids, whatever. Nobody has to go through what I went through as a young kid and have Crohn's disease. So I want to find out if there's a genetic component and if they can stop it or somehow treat it or something like that. And it took seven months for them to accept our money. And then he said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, you know, I'm the incoming. He knew I was the incoming president of our synagogue and the synagogue had been around for many years and I had been on the board for many years. And I knew that we had a capital campaign. We were restoring our sanctuary and we had about a million dollars to go until the final amount kicked in and we would be done. It was already starting to be built, but we were raising the money. And people were you know, working hard. We had a development person working very hard to raise the money. And I thought, wow, I can give them that last million dollars so they won't have to worry about it anymore. And I can start in as president knowing that the money is there. And I called the rabbi and I said, hey, Josh and I are sitting here and we've just decided we're going to give you the money to close the capital campaign. And that was a big thing for me to say. I never thought I would be coming out of my mouth for a million dollars. It was just crazy. And so I said that and she said, I don't know what to say. And I thought, huh. Well, well thank you. I say thank you. That's exactly what I said. <laughs> and she said, well, I'm not sure what to do with that because I didn't make an ask. And then I thought, this is a crazy world. Like, I can't believe yeah. this. This one, on one side, it's taking the months and I had to keep calling them. They'd give me a proposal. We'd say, fine, keep going. We're ready to do this. And then they disappear for a month. And then I had this thing with the rabbi where it's like, oh, we didn't make an ask. So therefore this doesn't count. And I thought this is absolutely insane. Uh, so, so that there, was really my journey. Yeah. Right. But, but there's two things here. And I would like for us to sort of explore both because I think both are fascinating, but in different ways. One is your fundraising experience, rather the experience of being fundraised. And that's pretty much what you talk about in the book. But then your situation is you know, fortunate, but it's not that unique. Like there are a number of people in the world now that are, I wouldn't say overnight becoming major, you know, wealthy families, but they are, there is a phenomenon like that. And something like what happened to you is not so uncommon in Silicon Valley, in Israel, for example, people making an exit. And, and I'm wondering, like with my JFN hat, the story of you sitting down with your husband, you know, in the kitchen table and deciding what to do is something that a lot of folks go through. And, and maybe we as a community should do more to sort of help you in that thinking process, right? And sort of, it would have been helpful for you to have somebody like, like us, like the JFN, for example, sitting down and say, hey, these are the questions you need to ask yourself now that you have money. These are the things that you need to think through. This is how it's going to affect your family. These are the things that are going to start happening to you now, right? Right. And I would have been really intimidated by the idea of joining something called Jewish Funders Network because I didn't, because right. I wasn't there yet. You didn't boy, think of yourself as, as part of that group. Right. But I would have loved that information early on. We immediately put our money into a donor advised fund. And that's only because a very good friend of ours, um, Adlai Wortman, was on the board and his daughter and our daughter happened to have met each other at camp years ago and they'd been friends forever. And he came to pick her up one day and I was sort of shaking and I said, you do money stuff, right? Can you tell me what to do? And so he said, well, there's this thing called a donor advised fund. You can do it with the Jewish Community Foundation. It becomes a double mitzvah. It helps the community yeah. too. I said, great, done. I, I don't need to know more. If, if it's going to be safe and you're going to tell me it's okay, it's fine. But, but that was really serendipitous that he was there. And if he wasn't, I would probably still not know what a donor advice fund was. But I also felt very isolated. And also when you're going through something like that, 
you don't want to talk about it like an affected person. You, you want to be the same person you were yesterday. Right. So if you don't know people who've gone through the same thing around the same time, or, or even like you said, people from Silicon Valley or Israel who've made a lot of money. But if, if you don't have that relationship already, there's really no one to talk to. It's like being an alien in an alien land. I'm, I'm taking note. And I hope my colleagues from the Federation and Jewish Criminal Fund world are also taking note because I think that's important. I think that you're right. It's about having the relation before you you go through a cash event like this. It's interesting, and I, I talk about it a little bit in the book about Edgar Online, which gives you all the information, all these public companies. Right. And anybody who really was into research, and maybe there's something that could even be done automatically online, the information that we had an IPO coming up and what the date was and how many shares we had, what position, and someone could have checked our name to see if we're Jewish or not. It was pretty easy to do. You could do that today. And I don't think anybody does it. I think in the uh, investment world, I think the stockbrokers and the wealth managers, I think they do this all day long. For some reason, the philanthropic community and the, the nonprofit community just doesn't do it. And still, I, I used to play a party game and ask every organization that pitched me if they knew what Edgar Online was, and nobody did, never once. Yeah. So right now, you could get that information. And I had a statistic that I just found out that there's 618,000 millennial millionaires in this country right now. Wow. Um, that is the same amount as the uh, total of all millionaires in the country in 1980. So 618,000 and there's a billionaire being minted every other day. So wow. that's where we are right now. We, we have been for a while. So then, of course, I go to the nonprofits that I work with and I talk to and I say, well, here's a statistic. How many millennial millionaires do you have on your board? This is my new fun party game. And the answer is almost always zero. Or they look. Or they the, have a token, a token millennial in the board, which is you know. Yeah, I couldn't even get that far. But here's the one right. I did get. Somebody said to me a week or two ago, "We actually have done that, and we have two. And he was very proud of himself. And I said, "Wow, that's amazing." I. I couldn't even find somebody with one and you have two. He says, yeah, we created a junior board for them. So they ghettoize them. And I just oh, said, no, Lord. that doesn't yeah. count. That's actually really bad. So yeah. That's, that's actually the worst you can do because we actually survey our members, especially our younger members at JFN. And the things they hate the most is to be seated at the kids table. Now, on the yep. other hand, be careful what you wish for, because being in a board may not be the most engaging activity that you can offer a millennial to do, but that's a different question. Let's go back to your uh, encounter with the fundraising world, or the, or the discontents of the fundraising world. So you you felt, frankly, um, I don't want to use a strong word, but, but disrespected, right, in a way. That sounds like, you know, oh, I've been dissed, like somebody didn't respect me the way they should. I just wanted them to respect me as another human, just like them. And that was very difficult to find. But let's also be fair to these nonprofits, too. I mean, those are folks that are generally overworked, not properly trained, right. uh, thrown into a hamster wheel of needing to raise the money and not used to to anything that comes out of the mold that they have, not because they're mean or stupid, just because that's the system in which they've been operating for a long time, right? Well, and by the way, that's exactly who I wrote the book for is because yeah. I wanted to give them something, you know, a lot of them sense that there's a better way to do this, but they've been taught an old fashioned way, an arcane way that's been really done about the same way, same methods for about a hundred years. We actually tracked it down historically. And so I have had a lot of them now say to me, 
wow, your book gives me license to say that somebody who's a big donor says this is a, a way that you would appreciate fundraisers talk to me, which will let me then go to my boss and go to my board or whatever and say, hey, I want to try it this way, because that's what it's going to take. They have to be able to have license to try it, as opposed to, like you just said, the board members who say, just go raise some more money and get out of here. And that's a problem. So I'm really trying to give them a tool that's helpful. And uh, I would assume that a lot of times when you were talking to people, folks were telling you, you need to consult with your husband. Yeah, that's a really fun one. It's, it's really tough. It didn't happen as often as I thought it would, but I have this new game I play, which is if someone says something to me that has to do with my husband or something like that, and it feels awkward to me, my test is I just think if roles were reversed, if I was, if they were talking to my husband, would he ever have asked that question? Did you talk to your wife? And if the answer is no, then I know that's an inappropriate question and I don't want to be part of that. Right. So, so basically what you're saying in your book, and, and by the way, whoever hasn't read the book, it's, it's a very good read. It's an easy read and it's a mixture of personal and conceptual and thinking and recipes. So it's a good combination, a very, a very enjoyable book. But the feeling you get is like treat the donor first and foremost as a full human being, not as a resource. Is that a good summary, you think? Yeah, and it's so bad and was so disturbing. And again, I can't blame the fundraisers who were taught this other way or maybe taught no matter what the person says to you, you laugh along with them. You know, you, the donor's always right. Just nod your head, which is insulting, actually. And they, of course, were told that that's the way that we want to be treated. And that's where a big piece of the disconnect is. But I do have two different ways that I tell people about how I felt. And one is that I felt like a piggy bank and I still do sometimes because I feel like the fundraisers would prefer that I was just an inanimate object that they could go look at that was full of money and they could smash it and run and take the money and they wouldn't have to talk to me. And I think that um, a lot of fundraisers, if they really were being honest, they probably prefer that. And the other part is that I think that if you did a survey of say a thousand nonprofit fundraisers and they knew that you would never know who they were, they knew it would be anonymous. Uh, and they were absolutely sure of that. And there was one question on the survey and the survey is, do you think donors are stupid is the survey question. And I know it's depressing, but I actually believe that at least half of them would say yes. And that's just a problem. That's not good. It cuts both ways, right? Sure. There's an element here of having been on both sides of the equation as a fundraiser and as a funder. I, I see the dehumanization in both ways. Like the fundraiser treats you just as a resource, you know, as a piggy bank, maybe it's a little too strong, but yeah, as a resource, you know, like it's not a resource for themselves, right? It's to do good, but it's not a full person. And the founder in many cases treats the fundraiser or the nonprofit as hired help and not really engaging with the complexity of their situation, right? I mean, if you add to that, that there's an intrinsic power imbalance between the donor and the grantee, that, that makes it much harder. And that's where the problem is, right? And that's why what I'm advocating for is that they sit down and kind of almost throw away all of those preconceived notions and look at each other as human beings. And if you start from that and say, how would I like to be treated? You actually are more likely to raise more money and to feel better about it. And in fact, there's quite a few organizations around that have now started to hire fundraisers who don't have histories of fundraising. So it used to be, you know, we want someone who's had 20 years or 30 years of fundraising but I know of several organizations that have brought in people who were just really great people, good listeners, did right. business development, that kind of thing. And they've all done exceptionally well. And I think it's because they didn't have that little voice that they heard from years mm -hmm. ago saying you have to do it this way. 
for at least two decades now, the statistic on first-time donors who donate a second time to the same organization uh, is about 40%. So every year you have to go replace that 60% of your donors because there isn't that relationship that's been built. And so instead of like, let's take the money right now and, and we'll hope for next year, or we'll pretend that they've told me they're an annual donor and send them a bill next year, whatever that is. Instead of that, maybe say, you know what, we really want to build a relationship. And some people it's going to take a little bit more time, but isn't it more worthwhile, say over a five or 10 year period to have somebody who really feels like it's a real relationship. And then they'll keep giving to you for that period of time instead of the way it's done now with a lot of people, which is no, I have to hit the numbers now. I need to make sure I raise the money. And so I don't have time for that relationship, that deep relationship. And then those people go somewhere else. So it's, it's kind of self-defeating. What did you come across in, in the research for your book about peer-to-peer fundraising? Because that could actually work very well or could backfire as well, right? Right. So there's there's a lot of different versions of that. And, you know, I guess one of them is, is almost giving circles when you have people who are both donors and work with nonprofits. I was more thinking about, you know, something that federations used to do, like some still do it, some with different formats, which is the lawyers' division, you know, the lawyers' solicit other lawyers. Now, in, in some cases, it's great. In some other cases, there's no relation. It's just you call and they give you because yeah. it's what we do. And Well, you know, I was approached for when I was in the entertainment business, when I was at the studios, I was approached by the entertainment group at Federation. And it just didn't feel right. It felt like it was a cover for asking me for money. And although I know like here's City of Hope, for example, Cedar sinai they've had groups for years that that have worked in that way. But I don't think younger people, I don't think this generation or younger are as into that. I think they see through it. Well, of course, the other piece is we have social media. So it's not like I have to go to one of those events to go see the other people who work in the same sector of the economy as I do. I don't need that because I'm going to be on with them all day long on social media. So why would I need to have that? But I do think, having said that, that there needs to be a way of people to share. And I think donors should be encouraged to share where they donate. Because back to what we talked about earlier, it would have been great for me if somebody told me just as we were looking at, hey, we're going to become philanthropists. And I was able to do a quick survey of my friends and say, gee, what do they give to? That would have been great because I would have been highly likely to give to those organizations. It would have also given me something to think about, about what's out there. And I also could have asked them, why did you choose to give to that organization? I do think that people are much more likely to give to an organization if they know that their friend gives to it, but not just gives to it because they have to, because it was some business quid pro quo from 10 years ago, but they give to this organization because they truly believe in it, body and soul. And if they do, that's more compelling than probably any sales pitch. Right. But you mentioned the giving circles before, and the giving circles is a very interesting twist on the notion of peer solicitation, because is not like, you know, the caricature of peer solicitation, which is the, you know, five guys in the Schweiz at the, at the JCC and everybody says, okay, guys, we give the same as last year. Like, it's not that. Like a giving circle is really, people go through a process, they create a relation, they study together the issues. And, and that could be a great vehicle. I mean, it is already a great vehicle for a lot of people. Well, and the interesting thing is that the commonality is not that you're all in real estate or you're all in medicine. The commonality is that you all have a desire to give. And I think that's really cool. One of the things that strikes me, like reading your book, that sort of confirms one of the things that I've been observing is that people have very diverse interests. Like you talk about Crohn's disease and then you talk about other stuff that you do and the synagogue and this and that. And 
And I think that one of the failures of the fundraising world is failing to understand the multiple dimensions of the donor and how they want and like different things. And we used to make people, or try to make people feel guilty about not giving everything to us. And it never works. I think that a whole lot of those people had one of these experiences kind of tiptoed into it a little bit, had one of these experiences like I had or worse, and then said, I can't put up with this, forget it. I'm just going to put the money away until someday when I meet somebody who actually treats me like a human. And you know that donor advice funds, now there's a whole debate, right? Uh, in my view, misplaced. I don't think donor advice funds are the problem. I think they are a vehicle as any other, and they could be used or misused, but uh, it depends on the education you give to donors, just that. Well, I agree. And and by the way, I had been talking to uh, somebody on the board. I'm on the board with New Israel Fund who had been involved in uh, the project that you guys just announced about the donor advice fund in Israel. And so I've been yeah. following that for a while and it's super exciting. But I do think that they've been used as a, a scapegoat almost. It's sort of a funny yeah. thing because there is so much money there. And because what a proxy for a fight that against capitalism that you're welcome to have it, but don't have it on the backs of philanthropy. Right, exactly. But I think that fundraisers and nonprofits are so frustrated, so deeply frustrated that they can't get the names of those people so that they can go out and fundraise, try and get money from them, try and extract money is what I wanted to say. But they're so frustrated by it that I think the frustration is coming out as this anger, you know, incredible, uh, you know, hostility towards donor advised funds. And I also, like you, I'm sure, and and like a lot of the people listening, I I see both sides. I mean, I personally, for my donor advised fund, which we just created a few years ago with New Israel Fund, I'm able to choose. Do I want it to say the name of the fund? Do I want it to say my name? How do I want that to happen? So I don't mind them knowing the name of the fund and I don't have, or my name, I don't care. And my name is actually in the name of the fund, but I could have called the fund something else. And I know that there are people who have it called something else so that they don't get harassed by a million fundraisers thinking, oh, well, you gave this to them. You should give this to me. We don't want to give people too many directives because we want them to read the book. But if there's one that you can share, like one very concrete thing that a fundraiser out there can do or that a CEO or CDO, chief development officer, can tell their fundraisers to do and not to do. Okay. I don't think that fundraising is a solitary thing. I think the fundraiser is kind of leading the charge and taking care of the strategy and maybe the data for the whole organization. So I always believe that everybody in a nonprofit, no matter what their role is, should be an ambassador for the cause, should know what that is that it's about. Both lay and professional people, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's kind of thing I usually say if you went to a cocktail party, you know, back when when cocktail parties start again. But if you went to a cocktail party and somebody said, you know, what do you do that you would be proud to talk about this being part of your life and why it's important to you? And then you get into your peer to peer thing and all of that. So I think it's important that everybody does that. But the most important piece of advice I can give and really where it all begins is treating the other person the way you would want to be treated. And people say to me, well, I'm not super rich. I'm not that person. It doesn't matter. Everybody I know has donated something to somebody at some point. I don't care if it was you know, some old clothing or if it was some money or if it was your kid's school or if it was, you know, millions of dollars. But everybody has been on that side. And you never know. Look at you. You weren't that wealthy. And then all of a sudden, so those relations, you never know when they're going to pay. And, and by the way, I think that you, you said something really interesting there. It's not just about being wealthy. I mean, poor people in this country are manifold, proportionally more generous than the billionaire class. So I think that it relates to everybody. 
yeah, this is just sort of like, think about yourself. Think of when you send an email, think about if I got that email, would I be offended? If you're sending, you know, five different text messages in a day, think about how you would feel. And if you just keep using that, I think that it will transform the way that people are doing fundraising and really start to get down the path we need to go on. You mentioned kids before. How would you want them to engage with philanthropy? Right. It's so interesting. I had somebody call me the other day who's creating a Gen Z platform. Uh, so they're age 10 to 22 and to teach them as the first, what do they call it? Digital generation that's been raised with all things digital. I think that that's really, really cool. And I love the idea that they're starting with kids early. But many kids, we talked about this, you mentioned it earlier, and if they didn't know they had money or they weren't born with money, many, 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 many kids, especially teenage years and early 20s, they're very uncomfortable with money. Most people have a weird relationship with money, but the younger people finding out that they have it all of a sudden, that's where it's really a big problem. And I think we need to be helpful and go gentle on them. And the worst thing we can say, or one of the worst things we can say is, well, just give to where your parents gave. That's just not gonna fly. You're gonna get all sorts of pushback, right? And let them carve their own path and have an interesting conversation. You know, I always think, you know, with Jeff and we have the Jewish Teen Founders Network that deals precisely with that. And one of the things we say is that these conversations about philanthropy can be actually amazing family conversations about values, about what is important for us as a family. You know, how do we make a difference in the world? You know, some families write a mission statement of the family, you know, and it's not always easy. Like we helped our members deal with issues During, I remember during the Gaza war, the last Gaza war, where different generations understood the situation very differently, right? But philanthropy, it divided them in a way because some wanted to support something, some others, but it also became the bridge. Like, can we, through philanthropy, try to find something that speaks to all our values? Right. And just again, back to what you were saying a second ago, the family tries to instill that and create for the rest of their family and their kids, and they want to talk about it. The family, let's say the elders in that family, they need to be ready to appreciate other opinions because if their goal, and I've seen this before, their goal is just to get their kids to give to exactly where they are giving, it's not going to work most of the time, maybe all the right. time. I think I think that all, all generations need to have a healthy doses of intellectual curiosity about the value of, of the other generation, right? Like it's not the young people need to learn, it's not that the old people need to learn, it's that everybody need to listen to each other and, and learn to see the world from their perspectives. Yes, very, very true. And we started our kids at about five with a donor advised fund. And it's interesting when they're really little, all they want is to know what they get out of it. But for example, they all have these donor advised funds and it was smallish and we adopted a dog and they were thinking about their dog was going to be two years old. And they were saying, oh my gosh, we want to do something for the dog's birthday. And I said, great. Why don't you go to your donor advised fund? And why don't you make a donation to the place where we found the dog to the shelter? And they said, oh, we can do that. I said, yeah, you can actually do that. And so we did. And we went and I had them get the check from the donor advised fund. And we went over to the shelter and gave it to them to help the other people and the other dogs. And it was really a very sweet thing for them, but it had to be on their terms and on their time frame. Writing a book is is an interesting exercise. It's an exercise of self-expression, but it's also an exercise in generosity. Like you're putting something out there for the world, right? Like there's an element of vulnerability there too. You're sort of exposing yourself to the world. How'd that feel? It was very strange, but I realized that most people weren't going to do it because they had 
businesses or social networks or whatever they didn't want to offend. And I just said, somebody has to step forward. We're the first book that's written exclusively by a donor about a donor's experience. And I, I realized that that most people who are donors just don't want to take the time for it, but they also don't want to put themselves out there like you're suggesting and get possibly beaten up and told, oh, you're just a rich, whiny, rich person. But I decided if I didn't do it, it wouldn't happen. And I didn't think that there was somebody else who would pick it up. Maybe there was. And so I just said, I'm, I've got to put it all out there. And then really the, the only kind of strange part about it is that we spent months with the publisher talking about, should it be more my story or should it be more the 40 plus people we interviewed their stories and corroboration, or should it be more of, instead of doing this, you should do that, like giving them tools. It took a lot of time to figure out that balance. And I'm very happy with how it ended up. Is there anything you see now during COVID times that has made the things that you describe better or worse? Yeah. So I think it provided a break for a lot of people to get off the treadmill. And I think that's in personal lives as well as in business lives. But for nonprofits, Again, there was this constant, get more money, get more money, do this, do this faster, make this better, blah, blah, blah. And when that all sort of stopped and there was panic initially, and then when the panic sort of subsided and people started getting used to it, innovation started becoming a big thing. People started saying, you know what? Maybe we should look at it. Maybe we don't have to do it that way. Maybe there's another way because everybody had to acclimate to Zoom and to functioning in a world, having their kids do homework online. So people who are resistant to change didn't have a choice. A lot of them just, you had to change because otherwise your kids didn't go to school. You had to do that. And so when you had to do that in one part of your life, I think that a lot of people's brains said, you know, maybe there's things we can do differently in our organization. And so I, we got a little bit of that and some time to really explore it. And I think that's great. Yeah. And if there's just one thing, I don't miss the gala dinners at all. <laughs> Right. I, you know, I was telling someone the other day that Quarantunes that I've written a lot about on my blog, RW Quarantunes, who's doing many, many events, they've raised, I think, over 30, 40 million dollars and they didn't exist before COVID. And what right. they've done is they've taken the galas, like for many of the organizations I'm part of, and they've taken instead done the gala with all of these kind of curated artists and created this incredibly wonderful, special hmm. event without the rubber chicken that you can watch in your pajamas. And they're making just as much money, if not more. It's the most amazing right. thing. Nobody would have paid attention to this, I, I don't think, right. if COVID hadn't happened. It catalyzed things, right? It sort of accelerated things. I mean, galas are a model that is, you know, I'm picking up on galas because whatever, but it's a model that is, it is a relic from the past. And some people like it, but a lot of people can't stand it and they go because they have to. And there was a lot of discussion about how to get rid of that model. And, and COVID sort of accelerates that in a way. So the way you can't do them. So it's like with distance learning. You can't go to school. So you have to accelerate the development of distance learning. So maybe out of this, some interesting models will, will actually emerge, right? And replace the, the existing one. You know, it sort of reminds me a little bit of that ice bucket challenge thing. It's just yeah. a completely out of left field thing that raised a boatload of money and no gala. It's amazing. Yeah, I'm hoping that that is a trend. So what makes you hopeful about the future of philanthropy, the future of the Jewish community, the future of fundraising, the future of the world? Wow, that's just a tiny little question, but I'll, I'll do yeah. parts of that. First of all, I think you have to have hope or you can't move forward. And I don't think there's any point in not not having some sort of hope or finding some sort of hope somewhere. You know, people getting vaccinated gives me hope. So so that's all, all a really a good thing. But 
in the world of philanthropy and nonprofits, the idea that all of the nonprofits that I interact with at the beginning said, we've got to reduce our budgets. We're not going to make the money this year where it's going to be a horrible year. All of them, without exception, have made way beyond that, are completely fine. And now, do they have some help from the government with the furloughs and everything? Yes, but they're fine. I mean, they're actually not not just a kind of fine, like they're actually fine. Many of them raised way more money than they thought they could have because, again, they were using that gala model. If we can't do a gala in an annual fund, then I guess we can't raise money. Um, and philanthropy stepped up. That's one of the things that I all the time say. Philanthropy really stepped up during this year. Well, and that is one thing that also made me incredibly hopeful is when the five different major um, foundations got together and said, we're going to figure out a way to streamline. You know, I had heard people for years say, you know, this the starvation cycle, you know, you give somebody a nonprofit starvation cycle. Yeah. Yeah. And they basically went in and they said, you know what? It took a little time, but I don't know. It was probably in the summer. And they said, guess what? We are now going to take your applications by email. We're going to make a decision quickly. We're going to give you multi-year grants. We're going to do all these things. It was unusual and it was coming together and it was fast. And that's got to give you hope that there's people who, you know, it's sort of like, what, what do they say when they, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. But in yeah. this case, they like got started making change. And I think that's the just such a wonderful, wonderful thing that that made that change. And I don't know how long would it have taken if there wasn't, you know, a crisis? I, I don't know. I don't know that any of it would have ever happened, maybe in 20 years. But it, it certainly is expediting innovation in a really, really wonderful way that needed to happen. And here it is. And it's working out. So thank you, Lisa. That was really interesting and thought provoking. Thank you. It was such a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much, Andres. Thanks so much to Lisa Greer. You can find her book, Philanthropy Revolution, which is published by HarperCollins at all major booksellers. Thank you for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback about this podcast, guest ideas, breaking philanthropic news, whatever you want to send us. Write us at communications at jfunders.org. Keep up with Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at jfunders. You can also follow me on Twitter at Adstokhoini. And I'll leave you with a quote from G.K. Chesterton, who said, The adventure of knowledge is not to look at new landscape, but seeing with new eyes. So in this year that we didn't travel that much, I hope we could all look at things with new eyes and keep giving, keep learning, and join us next time on What Gives.